business and people. Your host, Walt Bayless. Let's get this show started. Hi, everyone. This is Walt from the Business and People podcast. I'm so excited today to have Scott Shipley on the show with us. Now, Scott not only is a three times Olympic champion, he dominated at a world level in kayaking and has then transitioned into becoming the CEO and founder of, of the biggest water park and, and uh, waterways development company in the world, creating the, uh, the whitewater uh, course for the London Olympics. He is now a man of vision, and it is a pleasure to welcome Scott Shibley to the show. Scott, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Oh, mate, it's, it's amazing to see your transition from competing at that high level, then, you know, taking your, your master's degree in engineering into a business field that kind of wrapped all around. How did that all come together? You know, I have no idea how this worked out. I was in school. I was studying to design ships. Uh, was going to work in the same field that my father worked in and an opportunity for a job doing river engineering came up and I, I jumped at the chance. Um, and it's kind of taken off from there. We, I formed my own company, S2O Design and Engineering. Um, we're really focused on people places. And so getting people who wouldn't otherwise be exposed to whitewater out there and active, both at that beginner level, hey, first time in the water, to that elite Olympic level, as in the 2012 Olympic Games. Fantastic, man. And, and with, a, with a surname like Shipley, working in the ship design business would have been, you know, such a natural progression. And I, I could have seen that coming through. But how did, you, how did you get into actual kayaking? Like, what was your, can you remember your first time on the water? Where did that all start from? I remember it. I, I loved kayaking from the second I started, which was second grade. Um, my father competed on the national team in 1965. And so he raced in the world championships. Um, I grew up paddling with my family. My brother also did it. Uh, we ran rivers all over the all over the Northwest, you know, Seattle area, which is where I grew up, um, and then sort of took that and, and put it on steroids when we started chasing down big, you know, big training opportunities in British Columbia, training with the national team there, and then racing in sort of regional and national and international championships as we grew up. Fantastic, man. Fantastic. And how did, uh, tell me about the day in the life of an Olympic champion, an Olympic athlete, three times back to back, three times silver medal, five times national champion, I think. How was your day structured? Like what was, what was the, the starting, the ending? How did it all come together in a day? You know, I think it's, people don't see that day, right? They don't normally see that day because for three and a half years, you're anonymous and yeah. you're that guy who gets up at six in the morning and goes out in the rain and and snow and paddles on a river nobody visits in the winter. Um, and then, uh, you know, for a few minutes there, um, you're on primetime TV at the Olympics on a hot sunny day. And so a typical day for us is up early. Um, we would all get out and paddle in the mornings for, for a couple hours. Um, usually on whitewater, we would live in places where there was a whitewater park, which back then meant often living overseas. So I lived mm. a, a long time in Australia, a lot of time in New Zealand, a lot of time in um, Europe, in, in, in the Augsburg area, to prepare for those Olympic Games, which are also held in whitewater parks. We would then uh, recover during the midday, analyze video, work with the coaches on a plan for that second workout, and then get out again in the afternoon. And so wow. we were on the water. We were in, you know, in wet clothes probably four, four and a half hours a day. So, wow. So there was a lot of time put in in that prep. Um, which is amazing because that race is 90, 95 seconds. So you're, you're prepping a huge amount of time for a, for a relatively short event. Wow. And, and I noticed that um, I, 
not a lot of athletes struggle with the kind of the financial uh, side of, of being a professional athlete before they break through. But I noticed on your resume that you listed as a professional kayaker. So were you able to actually get sponsorship and, and to be able to, to fund yourself through that journey? Yes and no. You know, on that early side, when you're, when you're trying to get better, um, I lived in a treehouse wow. um, for six months of the year. I lived in a car the other six months of the year. Sometimes I had to share the car. I mean, there wasn't enough gas money to get around. Um, I can remember coming to races in Colorado from the East Coast and having to make top three to have the money to get back to, um, to the East Coast. And so, you know, I lived on a nickel and a dime there for a while. Towards the end of my career, um, because I had mixed this design world with the um, competitive world, I was a real target for sponsorship. You know, I designed a kayak with Dagger Kayaks. Um, and so they were sponsoring me saying, look, we have this designer and competitor and they're creating better boats for us. And that, that story worked really well for canoe paddles or kayak paddles, for boats, for gear. And so for me, it was a good way to, um, to really get myself out there and raise some money. And the other committee was really high on the fact that, hey, he's got some world medals going into these Olympics. And so, um, so that's somebody we want to support as well. And so towards the end, it was something that I could live on and more importantly, that I could effectively race on so I could get to Europe and do those races. Yeah. Um, I could prepare for an Olympic um, team trials in Spain by going to Spain earlier and things like that. And so it, it created opportunities I didn't have when I was living living on a nickel and a dime. Wow. I, I love that, um, you know, where you said uh, I had to make top three just to be able to make it home. You know, there's nothing like that hunger when you, it just has to be done to, to push that over the line. As you're coming towards the end of the career, you mentioned that you, you had that design uh, built in, like you, you had that design degree that was part of your world as well. W- at what time was there a conscious changeover to kind of all focused on racing, all focused on design? And it seems like a few years in the middle there, they started to blend in. You know, I, I raced and trained um, in Atlanta, which was where our training center was. There's a river there you can train on. And I was also going to Georgia Tech. And so I was focused on getting that degree as well. But if at any point in time you asked me what I did, I would tell you I was a kayaker and that's what I cared about. And I didn't sacrifice anything other than what it took to be, um, be that top level kayaker. Mm. And then at the 2000 games, I finished in fifth, didn't get a medal. And it was like a light switch flip. I just said, look, I'm done. I, I want to get married to this German paddler I'm dating and uh, I'm going to move into that design world. And so at that point in time, um, I kind of moved that direction. Prior to that, everything I designed was to make me go faster. (laughs) A new boat, a new paddle, a new set of gear. Um, And after that, I started focusing on how do I create um, people places. Now, that's where we want to flow into because now S2O Designs, you've created some of the most amazing whitewater and water parks in the world. And you've been able to bring people into outdoor environments where they wouldn't have normally been exposed to that. Not only that, the river restoration, being able to actually restore river environments back up to, to bring the life back into them. I know you're fresh back from the opening in Fort Collins. What's been the biggest project that you've done so far? That's a good question. Um, you know, we're working right now on the biggest projects that we've ever done. We've got, we've got uh, three right now that are kind of in the hopper and getting started. We're not allowed to talk about any of them. They're all under non-disclosure. The biggest one we could talk about is the U.S. National Whitewater Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, It's a very different project than the one we just opened in Fort Collins. Um, But it's 
It's a pumped whitewater park. It runs any day of the year that you want to turn those pumps on. It is the focal point. We Instead of calling it a whitewater park, we call it an outdoor adventure park. It's It's got 30 different activities you can do. And so everything from running in a 5K to paddling on flat water to ropes courses and zip lines. There's a conference center. There's team building. There's uh, swift water rescue training. We've tried to bring all those things that happen in and around a river and, and artificially create that near a city center, city of Charlotte, and uh, create that outdoor event center. And what it's become, you know, I always talk about how when I grew up, golf courses were a big thing. And you're, you know, my grandparents were members of the golf club and we'd go to dinners there. We'd go to parties there. Christmas, you know, parties were there and then um, play golf there and swim in their pool. Well, this Charlotte um, Whitewater Center has now become the place where we see people down there doing business. We see people who come three, four, five times a week with, uh, with their friends, with their guests, with whoever. And so it's become a community center for this outdoor lifestyle. And uh, so if you're a climber or a surfer or a kayaker, that's your place to go several times a week. And so that has become a lifestyle center for that community. And that's what we're trying to create with a lot of these parks. That's unreal, man. And, and, and I guess there's a swell, no pun intended, there's a swell coming through from every time you do one of these adventure parks, outdoor parks, the next one, people, you know, saying, wow, that was such a success. I want that in my city and to be able to, to bring that through. What was, the, what was the first one for you? That was the first big one was Charlotte and that's, it's matured. And so it's really got operations down pat and bringing a lot of folks in. Um, and so, um, so that's one that's kind of our prototype because it's really evolved with the usage that it sees. Um, since then we've done about 20 or 30 different parks, um, some in natural rivers, some in pumped environments. And so, um, and we've got that many on the books again right now for future projects. That's amazing. How big's your team now, Scott? We are uh, 11 people. Wow. Um, and so, um, so we have a big team and we're focused not just on the whitewater park, but also river restoration now. So um, restoring habitat and connecting rivers to their floodplains and things like that, um, as well as these in-stream whitewater parks. Wow, that's unreal. So in addition to the 11, I'm imagining that you probably have a whole bunch of subcontractors or local uh, tradespeople that are connected in each environment that you go to? Exactly, yeah. And these are actually built locally. You know, you think about your peak day on site is probably two to 300 workers building these projects. They're, some of them are as big as 60, $80 million projects. And so that has to be a local contractor. You can't bring that band with you. So part of what we specialize in is working with that local team so that we can teach them to build this very unique thing and, um, and get them kind of tuned up on, on how to do it right. Wow, that's so cool. How did, how did your transition from uh, elite level sports into now running these massive teams of people, what were the lessons that you learned that kind of transitioned well and what were the shortcomings? You know, one of the things I've really learned, we, we built a park early on when I was working at a different firm, and it had a couple great waves, and I was that 1%, right? I was that elite kayaker at the time. And, uh, and then we built a third wave kind of as an add-on, and it was so small and so, um, so much less in my mind than those other two. Um, and I thought, boy, we, we might have to come back and tune that, make that better than it was. And, uh, but when I went there in the summer, what I saw was – me and three or four friends focused on that very big hydraulic, which is intimidating. It's where the crowds are watching. It's the, in the photos that market that town. But there was probably 70 people at that, at that other way wow. waiting to get on over the course of the day. And so, so what I learned was, um, you know, there's part of this that's brand, and that, that's where your elite level is. But if you want to connect communities to the river, you have to design it for that community. And 
that's a very different thing as well when you take it to the Midwest where nobody kayaks. And so you're saying, what's that first experience? Is it an inner tube? Is it an inflatable kayak? And so designing for those different users as opposed to designing to that elite level has really been our kind of our secret to success. And it surprised me because I, I looked at it, as I said, and thought maybe we had a failure here. Wow, that's interesting. Like even as you said about the, the, um, the sporting events at the start, you're anonymous for three and a half years for that 95 seconds of race time. When you look at the park, you know, the, the big media center is right at the end there with, that, with the huge wave of the, the big hydraulic, as you were saying. But the, the work that goes in is at the smaller one, the incremental building up the skill level of the community coming through. Like there's a great, there's a great synergy there in terms of, you know, what people see versus the work that goes in to get there. Absolutely. You know, we have people rafting at our parks that don't swim. Wow. And so that life jacket, that helmet makes it possible for them. But if they show up and say, oh, hell no, I'm not going in that, then you've lost a customer. But if they show up and say, this is a pretty good place to start over here. And in the end, all of them end up rafting on both channels because it's not, especially with a guided raft trip, it's something you're very capable of doing. But they all want that low hurdle, that low intimidation thing to start with. And then you work your way up. And that makes sense for other things. I'm new to climbing, right? And I'm, I'm not climbing El Cap, right? I watched that on a movie, but I climb a little thing with a pad underneath it and, nice. uh, and a rope on, you know? And so, um, so it's how people get into things and realizing that pathway and understanding that person really makes sense. Wow, cool. I think that that's got so many business lessons just in that short analogy, you know, being able to start and target to the marketplace and, and design your product to the marketplace and then move them through to the bigger event. I think that's got a, a huge synergy. What were the, what were the things that, uh, that you felt as you came into the business world that you went, whoa, I had no idea that this was going to come across my plate? Well, and that's very different than this Olympic environment as well. And kayaking is a, a sport for individuals. And when you look at, um, how we put that together, even, even in that environment, we were telling the coaches, I need to be coached here. Here's my training plan. Here's how you fit into that. Please help me with this and that. And so it was a very um, me-centered environment. But when you get into business, what you realize is good teams build good projects. And so, um, so you're not looking for that, that thing where you say, okay, I did this whole thing myself. You're looking at that whole team. And for us, that's the 11 people here, but it's also the people who um, – come in as our architects and people come in as our landscape architects and you're looking for really high performers there that you can team up with so that when you come in you say look we are the best at this and we're executing not just on the whitewater but on the landscape and on the planning and on the you know uh, we have ample parking and it's easy to drop off and there's great food and beverage and so people have that holistic experience of the outdoor lifestyle which is different than designing a library or something like that yeah um, and and we can bring that into that environment so for me the big lesson has been how do you put together that team that can really build these things? Definitely. Absolutely. One of the things that our, our audience predominantly, Scott, are entrepreneurs, they're driven people, goal setters, you know, that kind of stuff. They might have started their own business. They might be already running their own business. Without a doubt, the, the team element seems to be one of the biggest uh, sticking points for, for any business person who is looking to really grow what they're doing. How have you gone about uh, building your team? Have they been headhunted or have you, uh, you know, have they come to you? How's that team kind of formed for you? I wish I knew the secret sauce there. Um, and, uh, and we find folks in different ways. And this is a difficult place to work. I travel a lot. And so, you know, uh, we don't have set hours. People who work here, they work um, on their own schedule. So folks can stay home or, or come in and work when they want to. So some days the office is full, some days it's empty. 
But the idea is, are you performing and meeting those goals? That's what we really Absolutely. hold it to. Um, we spend a lot of time on project management. How do we make sure we know we're strategically heading in the right direction and that, that we're managing that critical path to make sure people have what they need to design going forward? Um, and that's true within this office, but it's also true with our subcontractors, right? You can't just take a design and throw it over a wall and say, boy, I hope that's a great pump station or I hope that's a great landscape. So we spend a lot of time as well um, organizing meetings and, and sort of working with folks that understand people flows better than we do and, uh, and land planning better than we do, but giving them the expertise they need to understand how that connects to this, this very special thing that nobody knows much about, which is whitewater. So. Wow, cool. So, you know, you're bringing in that, that next level of expertise. So you bring your piece to the table. The next person brings their piece to the table and together you fit that puzzle. That's so cool. Do you think um, uh, one of the things that you mentioned before in, in your training routine was that you would hit the water early, videotape that session. The middle of the day was spent reviewing that video and then the afternoon was implementing improvements into that technique. Do you find that maybe it's not a daily, you know, twice execute middle review, but do you find that same flow with the park design, with the river restoration projects that you, you, uh, you initiate a, a step, you review, and then you modify as you go on? Does that, does that fit in the same model? It does. I mean, this idea in school, you call it continuous improvement, right? How do you continuously improve the things you do? And so for us, a lot of that is just setting in place standard things that we do. You know, what does that project folder look like so we can all get in there efficiently? Um, what do those final deliverables look like? And can we plan that from the start? Cool. You know, starting to put in these processes that take the lessons learned um, on one project and bring it to the next and then keeping that as a living document so that on the next project, if you go, that was a nice try, but I need to do better, you can make those changes. And so for us, a lot of that's processes. Every project for us, though, seems to be different, you know, and so... Um, and I don't know, you know, designing a pickup truck or something, if that's the same iteration again and again, or each one feels like a new thing. But for us, they all feel like new things. And so one of the things we've learned is not to assume. We need to go back to those basics. Who's going to use this part? Why is it different that it's in Indiana versus Colorado or things like that? And so for us, a lot of it is trying to predict what those differences are and how they affect our design. I love that, mate. And, and again, taking that as a wider lesson from a business point of view, coming back again to saying, who's our market? How are they going to use my product? What's the best way to, to deliver that experience? And then, you know, uh, review, reiterate, et cetera, to keep that, to keep that fresh. It's absolutely cool. Scott, um, with the, the, uh, you, before we hit record, you were telling me about the Fort Collins opening. And I love that story. Um, so I really want to drill into that for a second. But just before I do, Tell me about the day that you got the phone call to do the 2012 London Olympic Park. You know, that was a crazy one because another team had started that project and we were brought in to finish that project. And so it started to be a lot of questions that came in about, are you out there? Are you available? Um, can we do this? And then um, one way to redo the design or reevaluate the design is to rebid the project as design build. And so we helped a contractor bid the project um, saying that we would do the design side and, uh, and we won that contract. And so that was amazing for us, partially because we'd agreed to do um, a lot of that work on spec. You know, we hoped we would get it, but we put a lot of work into that design build proposal. And so it was a relief on several fronts, but, um, but you know, for me, cause that's my background. It's a very special thing to be involved in an Olympic project. Um, I loved doing it. It's, 
it's so much red tape, <laughs> but it's a wonderful thing to be a part of. And then to, to, uh, to see that in action and go watch that Olympic Games on a channel you built is just amazing. Did you get to run it? Oh, yeah. You know, we nice. have it in our contract, six weeks, just us. And so wow, we had cool. Awesome. We so, actually, a couple of guys wanted to sneak in and we dressed them up in S2O gear and let them paddle, but they were the only ones that got Fantastic. Up. That's so cool. It's like build your own Olympic park and uh, yes. you know, yeah. someone else. That's so great. Awesome stuff. So this, the, the opening in Fort Collins, I, again, I love the story. You, you said to me, that, so we, as we record this, guys, it's probably a, a couple of months before, you know, we'll be live. But as we record this, Scott has just got back from the Fort Collins opening. Uh, and it's uh, early October as we're, as we're recording this. Scott, you were worried about opening the park in this kind of season. You know, most of our parks try and open for that springtime season. And this one, for a number of reasons, we needed to let the grass grow in over the summer and a lot of the things that sort of allow a park to be completed. And so... This had an October opening, and for a whitewater park, you know, that's the time of year in Colorado when people are thinking about skiing. They don't want to go outside and get wet. The water's typically lower, um, and so I thought, well, it'll be good to go up and shake everybody's hand because it was a great project to work together on, but I thought it might be me and sort of the eight or nine guys who led each of the design teams, and that would be it, and in the end, there were thousands of people. I mean, it was literally chock full of boaters in the water. Um, when I got off the water and wanted to, I got changed and wanted to run up to the ribbon opening last second, um, I couldn't cross the bridge. They had shut the bridge down because the plaza had filled up, this huge plaza with so many people that wow. they couldn't let more people in. And so, um, so it was a pleasant surprise and a wonderful celebration. So. How, how much of a buzz is that for you? Like to be able to, to have that project, you were there at the ribbon cutting ceremony and there were so many people that you couldn't get to the ribbon because that, that bridge was packed out so hard. Like, how, how was your feeling? You must have just been on top of the moon. I love it. I mean, you're, you're proud of that whole team that does a project like this, but um, just so proud that people wanted to use that park. And for us, the real special thing is to see it actually getting used by so many people and to see the impact that they have on people's lives. You know, we had designed in handicap ramps to the project. And uh, that's something that in the past hasn't been a requirement. It's an extreme sport and it's a, but we've, we've decided just to commit ourselves to that on our projects. We're going to have 80 accessible ramps to the water everywhere um, that we, that we work. And, uh, and then on my first run down the course, the guy swam behind me, flipped over his boat, didn't flip it back up. Um, he was in the water. And, uh, and so I did a little rescue, pushed his boat to the side and it was pretty clear he could swim to shore, but it took a while for him to get over, you know? And, uh, and then at some point, I, I, uh, he was just sitting there in the water, and it was cold. And at some point, I said, hey, um, do you want me to get out and help you get out of the water? And he's like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm just attaching my leg. And uh, I looked down, and the guy had one leg and a prosthetic. Um, and, he, uh, and then he, once he got it all figured out, he was able to walk out of the water. But what an amazing experience wow. to, to see that in action on day one, run one. We had built this thing that already um, – has a positive impact on the community in a way that it, it normally wouldn't. So that was wonderful. That's amazing. That's so cool, man. Well done. That's, that's a really awesome story. Um, Scott, then moving from the, 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 let's say the Whitewater Park, the adventure parks designing that you've done, and I want to come back to your patent in just a second, but moving away from that into the river restoration, how are those projects different? You know, the goals and objectives are different. When we look at river restoration, we're starting to say, how does a river need to naturally function? And a lot of times it's flood mitigation that you're looking at. How do you protect life and property you know, by using sort of a natural buffer there? Um, and I think all of us have heard a lot about that in recent years. And then as well, 
Um, how do you connect the fish habitat? There's, there's some riparian species that literally won't cross a trail because they know they're good eating if they do. And so how do you get um, connected riparian habitat up both banks or at least one bank so that these species can, can move up and down the waterway? Um, how do you get that plant life back? And what's, what's the native plant that you want so you don't have weeds out there that are growing that are um, inhibiting that natural habitat? And so for us, we're going in and looking at these from a very holistic standpoint and saying, what's the best thing for the river? And then the, the sort of special sauce we bring to those is how do we add recreation into that? And so we'll do a whole river restoration, but we'll create the river access points and maybe not a traditional whitewater park, but um, something that allows people to get out and experience that, whether it's in a canoe floating down or the river, or something similar to that. Wow. Amazing. Have you had to, you know, hit the books in terms of, of uh, water biology and, and ecology and that kind of stuff. Have you had to learn a lot of, or did you bring someone in with those skills? You know, it's been a huge learning process for me, but the biggest part of that is bringing in the right people. And, uh, and so we had those capabilities with regard to modeling, you know, uh, the flow modeling and design and, and AutoCAD and all the things it takes to push those things out. But when it came to what kind of plant life goes in there, well, we brought in a specialist biologist you know, what's the geomorphology? Some of that we have on staff, but some of that we bring in as a specialist who's a specialist in fish habitat or a specialist in um, sediment transport or things like that, where we can, we can make sure that whatever the problem is that got the project started is effectively addressed through this solution. Wow. So cool. Unreal. And so you've got, you've got 20 projects now on the books that you're actively working in. When do you get time to sleep? <laughs> when do I get time to kayak is the problem. Yeah, right. You know, one of the big problems of this job is as soon as we make whitewater, we go home. And so um, the big yeah, tragedy don't get to play. is the last time we get paid to show up is the first time we can go kayaking. You know? Right. So, Damn it. So you get, you, you've built this amazing center and they're like, okay, guys, I've got to go. Like I'm off to the next one. And you, you're looking at the water. You're looking at the runs that you've built going, man, I just want to float down this thing just for a few more days. Now, I know you're heading up to play tomorrow. One of the, when we were sitting up there, I'll point out, guys, if you're, when you're watching this and listening, I've been chasing this interview with Scott for ages because I've been fascinated by the story. And Scott said to me in, the, in a reply email, um, I can do this day, but I can't do tomorrow because I'm off to play. So tomorrow you're off into the, into the mountains. You've got some climbing yes. or kayaking tomorrow. Well, um, hopefully skiing. Uh, oh, cool. The snow is on its way, but um, we're headed up to the, do some mountain biking and uh, climb a 14er. So my, my kids are really into this mountaineering thing. And so we're, we're doing some of that. And it's, it's near one of the whitewater parks. And so I've been kind of suggesting that to the kids, but the, the, uh, the motorbikes they seem to have fallen a bit far from the tree, those kids. Oh, no. Okay. So they go, yeah, sure. That's fine for you, Dad. But we hear enough about it. We, we just want to hit the trails. Super exactly. Cool. So, um, Scott, one of the things that I, I mentioned a few moments ago was that you have a pattern with you with the park design. You created the rapid blocks, which which is a movable rapid system, so that you can I, I kind of dynamically change a park and it's it's right it's uh, it's runs. How did you go in terms of the the patent process? Because I think that's a fascinating thing. Like, what happened there in terms of design, patent, execution, and you know that's something that you'll own forever. It's a good question. Um, and really the interesting part of that story is how we got started. Mm-hmm. Um, in London, um, when we won this design build contract, one of the objectives was it has to be state-of-the-art 10 years in the future. Well, London was 2012. I raced in the 2000 Olympics and it was a totally different sport. It had become shorter. The boats had become shorter, much more dynamic. Um, and so then the question is, how do we know what the sport will look like 10 years into the future? And we don't. And so. Um, 
what we decided to do was design a channel that could evolve with the sport. Wow. And that meant that instead of having permanent concrete and permanent rocks um, forming that concrete bed, we wanted to create something where we could move those obstacles and adapt with the channel itself. And so the idea for rapid locks came up and the idea was how do we use an, a, an established connection system, which was Unistrut for us. Those Unistrut rails, um, you buy them off the shelf. Every building in the world has some in it. Um, they're very cheap for what they are and they're made to fit in concrete. And so and once we established that was the connection system, then it was a matter of going in and we used uh, finite element analysis because we wanted to rotomold the, the blocks out of the same material that plastic kayaks are made out of, which is the manufacturers that I knew from my days back in designing. So we went back to the Dagger Kayak Company who I'd made kayaks for, and we, um, we worked with them and this FEA software to create a stiff enough obstacle that you could put it out there and robust enough, put it out there in this very erosive, very powerful environment and, and have it stay. And so that's where the rapid blocks came from. Wow, so cool. Again, I, I, I like to take that, that commentary and look at it from a business lesson. And when you look at that and say, okay, one of the things we needed to do was design our project today to be dynamic enough to be adaptable for what the project might look like in 10 years' time. And, and from a business perspective, we say, okay, wow, that's an incredible way of, of thinking instead of let's produce something. It's let's produce something that has the ability to be flexible as the, as the world around it changes. I think that's, that's super cool. And it was a wake-up call. My, my business partner in that, Andy Laird, who's, a, who's a, a British engineer, you know, both of us looked at it as a great way to get something adjustable that does the same thing. Yeah. And then when we built London and we started to tune it and, and we would just move a single block out of 1,300 blocks, we would move a single block and it would just completely change the whitewater in that section of the river. Wow. There was this huge aha moment that not only had we replicated what we needed to replicate, it was something better. Now we could tune the whitewater to exactly what the Olympics wanted or tune the whitewater to that same course, tune it so it's good for rafting after the Olympics and they have this legacy operation. And that was our aha moment where we said, look, this is, this has gone from uh, more of the same to something totally amazing. And even we didn't see that coming. That's so cool. And, and what a, what a dream for a, for a kayaker or for a rafter to be able to, to have a different run on the heat compared to the final. Like, I know you probably go, no, I want to know the course, but for the people who are at the elite, they go, I need the challenge. Right. So I want to see it completely different. And to be able to create that in a, a set environment to have a dynamic change amongst it. I think that's, that's super cool, man. Well, and even more amazing is you, you start to tap the brains of the collective, right? And so um, you can move a block with a wrench. It's a, it's a 19 millimeter socket and it moves everything out there. And so um, you start to get in situations where the coaches or the athletes are saying, hey, let's try something different here. Let's try this. Let's try that. And all of a sudden now your system is evolving without you having to do anything and getting better with each generation. Wow. Um, that's never happened before in battle sports, right? It's, it's people making it better for you. And that's, that's, that's great. Cool. That's amazing. Do you know, Scott, one of the things that you mentioned, uh, I've, I'm so respectful of your time, man. And, and thank you. I, I won't take too much more of it, even though I could ask you questions all day. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was uh, as you were, as you were kayaking, as you were out on the water, it was a solo sport and you were coming back to your coach saying, help me here help me there. You knew where you were needing some assistance and you were, you know, attaching the right people to those skill sets and moving forward. Do you have that same thing with business now? Do you have a business coach in different areas? Is somebody helping you with different elements? Do you have an overall coach? Do you go it alone? What's your, what's your strategy there? 
Well, and I think when you go back to that coaching um, comparison, I think one thing to think about is as an athlete, you see one thing, you know, and, and you're in big white water, it's turbulent, it's powerful, and you have perceptions. You can feel the water pushing you, you can feel the speed, you can feel these things. Sometimes they fool you, right? Sometimes it feels very fast, but it's actually slow. And what that coach sees is a different perspective. They're on shore, they're looking at you from far away. They see the surroundings that, that are hidden from you in this sort of um, environment where you're racing through it. And so they can give you a perspective you don't have. And sometimes you're saying, no way. I mean, no way uh, is he correct or he or she correct um, because I felt something different. But then you'll watch that video later and you go, man, that coach was right. They could see something I couldn't see. Or they have the perspective because they don't have the emotions that go along with it that, yeah. that tie you so into this thing and, and make you see things differently. And so that's a different perspective. And we have a leadership coach we work with. Um, cool. It's good for, for both myself and the, um, the team that I work with. Um, that has been great. But what I also do is I, you know, there's, a, there's an old school mafia um, of, of paddle sports businesses that are out there. And all of them are people I either paddled with or worked with in the past. And so I often find myself calling up these folks, Joe Pulley, and we started the Dagger Kayak Company, or Eugene Buchanan, who ran a paddle sports magazine, expert in marketing. And you're, you're saying to these people, um, hey, I need your advice on this thing that you're a specialist at. And by having that awesome. quasi board of directors, you can get some great advice from people who've been down that road. They aren't emotionally involved and they, they've solved the problems you've solved, presumably, in the past. And so there's been some great advice there. Man, I think like for anybody that's listening, you know, just rewind 60 seconds and listen to that again, because I think that's super cool. Looking at a, at a you said a quasi board of directors, but like a, a mastermind of talented people that you can. that came up that my audio would change. So I'll flip that back. Scott, again, thank you so much for the, for the time. Just a couple of questions uh, left. Let me see. Have you still got, have you got my sound back again, Scott? Yeah, I do. Thanks. Yeah. I had a message pop up there. I don't know what, what happened there. Um, so you were talking about advice from this quasi board of directors. Tell me something. If you had the opportunity to give yourself advice 20 years ago, knowing what you know now about business, about S2O designs, about how things have played out, what advice would you give yourself 20 years ago to make that journey more uh, accessible, to make it better? To what, what would you do differently if you had that time again? You know, I don't know the answer to that. And uh, I ran into this. We started a second company here that does ecology um, out of the same office and, and I'm business partners with, with Heather Houston, who's an expert in that field. Um, and when we started her company up in our office, I said, well, look, I've only done it once. I don't know much. And, she said, oh, you've got all this experience. And I said, no, no, no. I mean, one time and I kind of just winged it. But then I found as we went through it, I was constantly giving advice. Well, here's how you want to do your website. Here's how you want to do. And, you know, especially when you start and you're working on, an, on, a, on a real budget, what, what you're looking at is what's the cheapest way to do this? Can I build my own website? Can I build my own? And what you, what you learn later is there's places to save money and places where you're really effective. And uh, in, in, in those effective places, you need professional help. It's going to really leverage that. Your website needs to be amazing. You're, you know, um, and so, um, so I don't know what advice I would give to young Scott Shibley, but, but I do know that um, I wish I'd reached out more along the way and just said, look, uh, help me set this up. <laughs> help me get going. You know, um, the, the other thing I'll say is building that team around you is important and having the right team and the, the right people who, 
um, who help you move the projects forward and help that team move the projects forward has been very important. And so finding those people and grabbing on to that has, has been a key part of this. Wow. I, again, man, I think like the, the lesson encapsulated there, kayaking may be a solo sport, but there's still a team of people that can advise on the different things from a different perspective because they have the expertise from shore. And we take that into a business world and we say, you know what? Entrepreneurialism is a solo sport. It's, it's what we do when we wake up and we get into that, in, get into that groove. But assembling that team, that group of experts, that person who has the onshore perspective can steer the company and the, the direction in such a powerful way. And I, I, if, that's, if that's the lesson that we're getting from, from this interview with, with yourself, Scott, I'm super grateful for it and uh, I really appreciate it. Man, I, I, I'll tell you I, what, I, I wish I could go back to that kayaker, Scott Shipley, and teach him that. Right, you know, okay. There were so many people that went by the wayside that you realize now would have been a great part of that team that we could have built but you were you know i was so focused on i'm on the lone wolf on this and you realize that team environment especially in sports even in individual sport brings so much more to to your ability to succeed and i just wish i'd known that way back then wow that's an interesting one because i think we feel like sometimes as we're going through whatever it is that we're going through we're so head down we're so focused on i need to get this done somebody comes by and says hey how about this and you're like don't talk to me like i'm just and, and to take that and say, hang on a second, just pause, because that person from the shore perspective may just give you a tiny little twist that could change the whole direction of where you're going. That's super cool, man. Super valuable. Um, Scott, have you, you, you were talking about lessons learned and that kind of stuff. Have there been any, any uh, media, any podcast, books, videos that you've tapped into in the business sense that's helped you along the way? Anything that you would say to somebody getting started? Hey, read this book. This will really help you. I need to do more of that. Um, you know, I come in early, I leave late, and I haven't done a lot of that. And recently working with a leadership coach, he's like, here's the things you need to be investing time in right now. And so, um, so I, need, I need to do more of that. I have, a, I have a friend who's actually a gold medalist that was a teammate in 92. He won, he won those Olympics. And he does a little leadership podcast, Joe Jacoby. Um, and uh, I think it's called Morning Cup of Joe or something like that. And so for me, that's been um, a really positive influence just to think about life in context, you know, because cool. um, part of what you're doing is building a company, but part of what you're doing is living a life. Yeah, and, uh, and so balancing those two can be very important. Super cool. Um, Scott, thank, again, I'm going to let you go and uh, hit the slopes and hopefully get some snow tomorrow when you, when you get up there. What's next for you? You've got these 20 projects. What are the goals that you're setting them? And where will we see S2O Designs, you know, in the future? What are the... What are the horizons? Our huge goal right now is getting more people out living these healthy, active outdoor lifestyles. And so we're really expanding what we do outside that river corridor because we want to get people recreating and active, which I think our community needs right now um, in the way they want to. It doesn't have to be a boat. We just want them moving and having fun and putting down their iPads and putting away the Nintendo and, and getting after it. And so um, our next uh, big projects are going to be really focused on on that, how do we create the link between the elite sport and the everyday person, and how do we create that best day out? Super cool, man. Super cool. Scott Shipley, the man in the boat by himself, building a community and a team as he rapids down the river. Thank you so much for your time, man. I've really, I've really been inspired by your lessons, and, and as you've talked it through, I wish you all the very best of success. I'm super, super thrilled for, for the park designs that you have coming through and, uh, you know, that, that uh, element back into community. Uh, again, man, thank you so much for your time. I wish you all the very best.
I appreciate it. Hey, let's reconnect when we get one of these new ones open and we'll get you on the water. Hey, that'd be awesome, man. I'd love to do it. Thanks again, Scott. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Talk to you later. Hey everyone, it's Walt and thanks so much for listening to the episodes on the podcast. We really love bringing these interviews to you and I hope you're getting a lot out of them. We've designed the podcast to really help and to engage with everybody out there. So you could help us by simply leaving us a comment or a review, subscribing on iTunes. Head over there now, make sure you hit that subscribe button and leave a review for us. It helps more than you could possibly believe. Do that now and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode.